Election we defined last week as an act of God. You should have this on your outline now. Anybody need an outline? Anybody need an outline? Hold up your hands. Just two people way in the back. There might be some on your chair over there. Okay. Thank you, Garth and Sandy. Uh, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them or in you and me, that would be, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And I mentioned that the word predestination is common, technically used to refer to both God choosing people to be saved and passing over some people who will not be saved, reprobation. But I understand in ordinary conversational English, people use the word predestination to talk mostly about God choosing people to be saved. And I don't mind using it that way. And we'll use the words, um, we'll use both the word election and the word predestination in this context uh, pretty synonymously. This is part of this larger unit that we're doing on the order of salvation. What is involved in our being saved? What it means to be saved is all ten of these things. God chooses us in election. He calls us through the gospel message. He gives us new spiritual life through regeneration. Conversion, we repent and believe in Christ. That's saving faith. Justification is our legal declaration that we're forgiven and not guilty before God, but have Christ's righteousness. Adoption, we become members of God's family. Sanctification, we become more holy and more like Christ. Perseverance, we remain Christians to the end of our life. Death, that is, uh, our physical bodies die and are buried in the grave, but our souls go to heaven. And glorification is our bodies being raised from the dead and made perfect <clears throat> at the time of Christ's return. What does it mean to be saved? All ten of those things. And we're going to work through them over the next several weeks. Does the New Testament teach predestination? This is what we talked about last week. And we looked at a number of verses that just talked about God or appointing some people to, be, to eternal for God. In Ephesians 1, choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and righteous before him. Um, other passages uh, where uh, Paul talked about predestination, I'll skip over that. And then, uh, how does the New Testament present the teaching of election? Number one, as a comfort. That is, Paul is saying, uh, we know all things work together for good for those uh, who love God and are called according to his purpose in Romans 8, 28 to 30, because God was planning and doing good for you in eternity past, before the world was created, when he, he, he uh, foreknew you and predestined you, in the recent past, when he chose you, I mean, when he called you, rather, and you came to saving faith, in, and, uh, and you were justified, and in the distant future, on into eternity future, when you will be glorified, far past, recent past, distant future, God has good for you, 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 Paul is saying, well, what do you think God's plan is for you today? Hello? <laughs> good, yes, good. And that, so he presents God's plan of predestination as a great comfort and encouragement to believers that God's purpose for them has always been good. And so today we know, even in difficult situations, that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then predestination is viewed as a reason to praise God. Why does God, Paul says, I'm bound to give thanks to God. Why? Because you were saved. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, we ought always to give thanks to God, brothers, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. We give thanks to God for you, for all of you, and we know that he has chosen you. And so there's a reason for thanksgiving. Thank you, God. We didn't deserve this, but you chose us. And that should be the response of our hearts. And then, as an encouragement to evangelism, Paul didn't say, oh, God has chosen, chosen, God has chosen a certain number, number to be saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. I think I'll go to one of these Greek islands and 
and sit in a hammock for the rest of my life. No, he said, and he, he traveled from city to city and endured persecution and flogging and imprisonment and shipwrecks and stoning and beating with, with rods and, the, and the, just all this and hostility. I endure everything for the sake of those that God has chosen, for the sake of the elect, he said. Why? Because he knew that if God chose people, he also chose human means through which those people would be saved. And Paul, Paul thought maybe, probably, likely, God, he was the human means, and so he had to be faithful to what God told him to do so that God's plans of predestination would be carried out through human means. Very interesting. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I, um, I thought about this uh, after class last week and just in conversation with, with, um, with some other people. Um, if we're going to act like Paul then the practical application for us is, let's say, we believe that God has chosen some people to be saved. Hmm. Do you think that includes some people in Phoenix and Scottsdale and the surrounding communities? Yes, says Jerry. All right. And Sandy agrees too. Okay. <laughs> we're, 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 we're doing great so far. Okay. That includes some people in our areas. Well, how do you know then who's going to be saved? Well, here's one way to find out. Here's one way to find out whom God has chosen to be saved. Decide you're going to knock on the doors of the people on your street or in your apartment complex and say, well, we're going to start a, a six-week Bible study on introduction to knowing uh, what, uh, what, who Jesus is or what Christianity is about, uh, on Tuesday nights at 7, would you like to come? And if there are some people that God has chosen to be saved, they'll say, well, I was just thinking about something like that. That is, you go try. And some will respond. And some people will say, no, sorry. And you don't know if they're not chosen or not, but what you know is they're not responding right at this minute. And maybe later they'll respond, or maybe somebody else will talk to them. We don't know. But if God has chosen some people to be saved, that encourages us to invite people to seek to find out. Am I, does that make sense? It's real practical application. And I, um, I, I was a little nervous to say that last week because I hadn't talked to Margaret about whether we are going to do this or not. <clears throat> But, uh, I, but I've, I've just got this idea in my mind. Maybe this would be really good in our own neighborhood to say, you know, we're going to try this. And we have, we have a Jewish family. We have a Mormon family. We have a Muslim family. We have a non-churched family. I'm just thinking of families on our block. And why not? Just ask and see. If I believe that God has chosen some, then I, I think some are going to say, yes, I would be interested. And maybe it would be the most unlikely people, people you wouldn't think about. Um, okay, well, that's the application. F? Can you assume the converse of that and, and uh, say that if you do not obey God's call to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that then some people will not uh, yeah. be saved because you didn't obey and bring them the good news? Okay, I'm going to repeat the question. Ev is saying a really good question. Can you assume the converse? If you don't endure everything for the sake of the elect. If you don't reach out to people, can you assume that means they're not saved? Well, there's always the... Or they won't be saved. Well, because you didn't obey. The answer is, I don't know. Uh, because, because maybe someone else will speak to that person. Because I don't know if, I don't know if you know, if uh, 
Sam and Sally down my street. I'm just making up names. There's no Sam and Sally on my street. I don't know if Sam and Sally down my street are, are chosen to be saved or not. If I don't reach out to them, I, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but I'm not giving any opportunity to find out that they may be people that God has chosen. That's my hope for them. And you know, I I don't know, Ev, if, um, if you remember things like the bill. Whenever someone asks that question, I, I, remember, I remember a real sadness about a situation where I was an undergraduate at Harvard. I was taking a history of music class, and, the, and it was a big lecture hall, 400 people maybe or something. I don't know. It was big. And Professor Woody Woodward was just very famous for this class, and it was a very popular class. And um, sometime during the course of the term, I got to talking to him about something, and he said, well, you really believe this Christianity business? I said, yes. He said, I wonder if we could have lunch. Well, I was terrified, because here he's a Harvard professor, and you know, I'm just an undergraduate. And so I may be terrified as an exaggeration, but I was nervous. So he came over to my, what you call a house. It's a, it's a dormitory for three, 400 people and eating facilities. And so he came to Quincy House and had um, lunch with me, and we went off to an area of the dining hall would be quiet, and we talked, and he started to probe, you know, what I believed about the Bible. And I, and I answered him truthfully, but I was really hesitant. And I thought, and, I, you know, I didn't, didn't lie, but I didn't push forward with asking him what he believed or, if, or if, if he really felt a need to trust in Christ, which would have been, it wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. But I didn't. I felt bad about it, but I thought, well, maybe I'll get some other chance to talk to him later. That was my junior year. Senior year, I come back to campus, start unpacking things, open the front page of the newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, Professor Woodward dead of heart attack. Going up the steps in his building, collapsed and died. I, I, I felt real sorrow about that. I do not know what happened to him. Maybe somebody else talked to him, but I don't know. Maybe that was, I mean, maybe God was saying, Wayne, here's an opportunity. I'm handing it to you on the silver platter, and I just, I didn't do well. I know I didn't do well. So I, I still, to this day, hope I see him in heaven. Um, and you could tell from some of the things that he said about great Christian music, Handel's Messiah, and things like that, that that those words of scripture were in his mind and he loved it. But I don't know if he had a saving relationship with Christ. And I won't know till heaven. But I, mm, I don't want to get there and say, Wayne, and have God say, Wayne, on that one, I gave you a responsibility and you failed. But I think that can happen. Sandy? If election is the sovereign choice of God in the manner in which you are, are teaching it, mm-hmm. then it strikes me, Wayne, and I say this not just to comfort you regarding the professor at, at Harvard, nor am I saying it so that we'll all just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I don't have any responsibility. But I think the bottom line is you and I are not going to thwart the sovereign plan of God. And, this, okay. and I... And again, I, say, I, I know there's a danger in saying that because it could be construed as, well, you know, I don't have to worry about saying anything because if, if they're yeah. elected, then that's, so, that's somebody's going to do it. Yeah. Yes, and that 
you know, I certainly am not trying to advance that thought, but if this is God's sovereign choice, then I don't believe that we as his creatures can thwart the sovereignty of the creator. I agree with that. But then I would add, Sandy, that God also has planned that wrong things happen and that and that evil things happen. And I don't want to be part of those. Oh, true. So, um, yes, there are times when I am part of those. And I know I've, I've done something wrong. I've made a mistake. And I pray that God would cover it. And, and But... but um, Um, but if if God's plan only included good things, then but I know that He also in His plan includes some things that are not good, and I know that He holds human beings accountable. That's why Paul can say in Acts twenty twenty six and twenty seven, "I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God." And I want to stand before God in that last day and say, "I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. If you did anything wrong, it's, if you rejected Christ, the responsibility is on you, not on me." But I think in that instance, I, I don't know. I'll just wait till, wait till heaven and hope I see him there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a mystery there, I know. Okay, correcting misunderstandings of the doctrinal election. We talked about this last week. It's not fatalistic or mechanistic. It's God as a real person relating to us as persons. God in love chooses us. And in sorrow, he passes over those who are not saved. That was one. And then... Uh, number two, election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. And when I looked over this outline that you have in your hand uh, this morning, I realized I did, that, that isn't worded quite as well as I would like on 2A. Election is not based on the foreknowledge of our faith. This is the classic Arminian position. What I mean by this, the word this means election based on the foreknowledge of our faith is the Arminian position. That is, the ultimate reason for election is the person's own decision, not God's choice, to believe or not. And then we talked about that last week. Okay, I won't go on into that now. Um, now, we get, here's, where we, here's where we ended, and uh, we're picking up this morning. Point D, objections to the doctrine of election. If, in fact, God, before the foundation of the world, chose you as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you would trust in him, not because of any merit that he foresaw in you, not because he looked into the future and saw that you would have a tendency to believe or that you would trust in Christ, not because of anything else, but just because he decided to love you. That's humbling. It's sobering. But it also raises it also raises some objections in our minds. And I've tried to put these in a number of questions here, six of them first. Well, if that view of election is true, people will say to me, then, Wayne, we don't have a choice in whether we accept Christ or not. Right? Is that? (laughs) Okay. My answer is this. We do have a choice. We voluntarily decide to believe in Christ. And in that choice, we decide to do what we most want to do. That is a choice. I remember when I was 12 years old, I heard a sermon, evening sermon at my Baptist church in Wisconsin, and I couldn't sleep. I 
was troubled by that sermon. It was talking about Christ coming back, and I didn't know if my heart was right before Christ. And I was just thinking and pondering about that. I didn't know if I had forgiveness of sins. I then, before I went to sleep, asked my mother if she would pray with me to receive Christ, and she did. Now, I remember the tug in my heart, the, the pull inside, just a sense of, I've got to do this. I have to decide. It just, It's just a longing in my heart. But was that a real choice? It was. It was me as a real person incredibly involved in that decision. My whole mind was caught up in, what am I going to do? Am I going to do this or not? Of course it was a choice. Do I know for absolute fact that God didn't plan before the foundation of the world that he would implant in me that desire to believe in him? How can I know that? I don't know everything that God does secretly, invisibly. I don't know all that God did in directing the family that I lived in, my parents, the church I went to, the personality that he gave me and that developed through various... I don't know all... I can't understand all of that. I'm not God. What I know is it was me deciding. There wasn't any pair of angels that came in my window that night and said, okay, Wayne, we're marching you over here. Kneel, now, now pray. There wasn't anything like that. It wasn't forced. It was me as a whole person deciding. Am I making sense? It's real. When I say it's real, I'm saying I did what I wanted to do. I chose what I wanted to choose. According to my whole personality, it was a genuine choice. As far as I know what a real human choice is, that was a real human choice. Now, if someone says, then you're sure that God didn't have anything to do with it. Come on, how can I know that? Because God works in mysterious ways in our hearts and our minds. I can't know that. I have to find out from the Bible what it tells me. What I do know is it was a real choice on my part. So I voluntarily decided to choose to believe in Christ. God's predestining that it will happen does not make it any less voluntary or real. Voluntary means I'm involved as a person. My exercise of the will is involved. I choose. I decide. And I do what I want to do, what I most want to do. Am I making sense here? Okay, I'm just going to come back to this again. Because what happens is we've got in our brains, this idea that if God plans it, it can't be a real choice. It can't be a voluntary choice. And I'm saying, no, it's both. Try to figure out if, how it can be both. All right, let's try this. Number two, objection. On this definition of election, our choices are not real choices. It's just a fake choice. Well, looked like a real choice to me. I was really deeply troubled. And I earnestly prayed. It looked very real to me. Real choice. So my response is, who says they're not real? Well, my conversation partner, my opponent on this doctrine may say, well, I'm saying it's not real. And I'm saying, well, look in the Bible. God counts them as real. <laughs> Am I going to believe you or God? <laughs> that is, again, people import into the discussion and a, a, um, a definition of real that means not caused by God. And I'm saying, why can't it be caused by God and still real according to what my being as a whole human being is? I'm real. So uh, I think if God counts them as real, they are. Oh, but this just bothers me, says someone. Number three, well, if you believe this, it makes us puppets or robots, not real persons. 
It's another way of saying the same thing. And my answer is, well, I don't think I'm a robot. How do you know I'm a robot? I'm not a robot. I, am I? Do I look like a robot to you? No. Mike, you're not a robot either. No. I mean, we're, 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 as much as there are real people, we're the most amazing creatures that God ever made. We're in his image. We're not puppets or robots. We're not just take out the battery and there's nothing left. We have incredibly complex personalities, and those personalities go into the choices we have. God created us in his image, and he counts us as real human beings, not puppets or robots. To call us puppets or robots is to dehumanize us. So no, we're not puppets or robots. We make real choices. Well, then how can you say that God predestines us to choose this? Well, I just do. Because the Bible tells me, not because I can figure out how exactly that works, but I'm saying both are true. Oh, I hope this is making sense. I'm getting... I hope this is making sense. <clears throat> Number four, objection. The doctrine of election means that unbelievers never had a chance to believe. My response here now, talking about unbelievers, my response is the Bible never blames God for not giving them a chance, but always blames people for rejecting his message. And here, here's just honestly a difference with how the Bible understands good things in the world and bad things in the world. When the Bible talks about good things, such as us being saved, ultimately the credit and the glory go to God. But when it talks about bad things in the world and people rejecting Christ, the, the blame is never put on God. The blame is always put on the human being. So in a way, there's something that's challenging us here to say, okay, Lord, I can't understand all that. But I'm going to speak the way your word speaks, and I'm going to give you glory, and I'm not going to blame you with doing something wrong. So, for instance, John 8:43, Jesus says to these Jewish opponents who were fighting him, fighting him, fighting him, why do you not understand what I say? It is because God predestined you not to understand. Does it say that? No. Try again. Why do you not understand what I say? Now, here goes the blame for doing something wrong. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will, your will is to do your father's desires. So Jesus is putting the focus of blame not on God, but on the person. And Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not, or we could paraphrase, or you were not, and you were not willing. You were not willing. It is the blame on the people who have rejected him, and that's the constant focus of the Bible. Again, John 5, 39 to 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, Jesus pointing to his opponents and putting the blame on them. You refuse to come to me. Romans 9.20, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God is just, he is fair. It is not right to say, if just because God chose some to be saved, that means that unbelievers never had a chance. That seems like it's blaming God, but the Bible never blames God for this. Number five. People say, <clears throat> election is unfair. This is not fair. 
My answer is, let's understand, according to Scripture, what fair would be. Perfectly fair would be for God not to save anyone. That's what he did with angels who sinned, and they became Satan and demons, and he chose to save none of them. And out of the human beings who sinned, which is all of us, if God chose to save no one, so this room was absolutely empty this morning. I'm not here, you're not here, no people saved. We could only still say, God, that's only what we deserved. That is fair. But if there are three people here, say, that's more than fair, that's mercy. If there are 10 people or 15 people saved out of the whole world, that's more mercy. And if there are millions, in fact, the Bible says, a great multitude whom no one can count from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, that's mercy and grace way beyond fairness, far more than we can ever imagine. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, we sang, sang in the last service. And so um, Paul does not run away from this question <clears throat> in Romans 9, he is dealing with it, and he's dealing with it in a way that we may not, we may not have chosen ourselves to deal with it. And it may, it may be somewhat, I'm sure it is somewhat hard for us to hear. But let's look at Romans 9, 18 to 24. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, this is unfair, isn't it? How can God blame people when he's chosen some and not others? Paul says, and now here it's interesting. At this point, at this point, Paul does not give any further philosophical explanation. He doesn't say, well, let me explain to you how this can be true, and it'll, and it'll all be clear, and you won't have any more questions. But at this point, Paul says, rather, but who are you, a man, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, now he doesn't quite say that this is what God did, but he's saying what if, and I think he's implying that this is what happened, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul says, who are we to answer back to God? He made us, and this is, in his sovereign will, this is what he has done. Now, I want to go back to these five objections, and if you look at them on your paper all together, those five objections are all different ways of saying, I want to be in charge. I want the final decision to rest with me, aren't they? I don't have a choice. I want to have the I want to have the final decision. It's not a real choice. Oh, that makes me a robot. It means people didn't have a chance. It's not fair. It's all saying 
God, I want the final choice to rest with me. And election is saying, no, ultimately, the final choice rests with God. Therefore, <clears throat> the reason, ultimately, behind behind all the whys and whys and whys, way back to the beginning, the ultimate reason why you trusted in Christ is that God chose you because of no merit in yourself and chose me because of no merit in myself. Ultimately, that humbles me and it makes me incredibly thankful forever to God. I think it does. I think it does. I'm going to stop there because those five are all of, a, of, the, kind, of the same sort of objection. And I, I said I'd give you enough time to talk about this, and we can take a good 15 minutes here just to have you process this. And I, I, I want to say, too, I am not at all claiming this is an easy doctrine to talk about. Um, it's it's giving us a tiny glimpse into a mystery of how God works in the world. But we don't know all the answers. And, and when we're thinking about ourselves and that God chose us to be saved, it does, I think it does cause us to be thankful. And when we're thinking about the fact that God uses means, it should spur us on to evangelism. But when we're thinking about people whom God has not chosen, then it is a very difficult doctrine to think about. It really is. As I began to get sad about that music professor that I, I don't know if he's saved or not. And our natural love for human beings made in God's image makes us want them to be saved. And that is right, and we should long for that, and it should be deeply troubling to us that any are not saved. And so when this is a troubling doctrine, it should be. If it wasn't troubling to us, there'd be something wrong with our hearts. But the tension that it's a troubling doctrine for us, we, because we're thinking of people who are not saved, and we love them, we want them to be saved, and then we match that against the tension of God is sovereign over all and he's far greater than we are and he does far beyond what we can understand and he wants us to submit to him and say, who are you, a man, to answer back to God? And he wants us to bow before him and acknowledge that his ways are good and right and he is wise. Then when I weigh that, oh, Lord, I wish it weren't this way. I wish, people, I wish these people were saved against God is God. I need to bow before him, then I know who wins out in my heart. I have to say, all right, God, if this is what your word teaches, and I'll believe it, and I still have that sadness about people not saved, but I, but I believe that someday that will all work out as well. The other thing that happened, and Wanda Stingley just said this to me when we were at the, getting coffee back here, I don't know if you remember telling me telling you about a, a girl from my high school who got in touch with us in the last couple of years, <clears throat> and I didn't know that she had become a Christian, but she found, saw me on the Internet or something, sent a note, 
And what she didn't know is that the day is that is that I went to see her father, who was in his 70s, and talked with him about the gospel and prayed in his office with him to receive Christ. And the next day he went into a coma and never recovered. And I was able to tell her that. And she knew that he had had some hunger for the gospel. She had since become a Christian. She was thankful. So I don't know what happened to this professor. Maybe God worked, you know, I don't, I don't know. So there, so, so we can hope and be, and be, be thankful for the way God works. Okay, now, um, Bob. Yeah, Wayne, the other side of that coin, though, is, uh, and, and you don't know what happened to the professor, but as far as your relationship with God, uh, it could have cost you some treasure in heaven, some yep. reward yep. in heaven. Yep. And and that's on us. If we, you know, as, as Sandy was saying, it, does it, you know, there are people who think it takes a burden off our shoulders to witness because we can assume that somebody else will. Yeah. But it's costing us rewards in heaven if yeah. we don't, if we're yeah. not responsive. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And and the sadness for a time that I think then will, be, will God will wipe away every tear. And, you know, I think there will be, along with great joy, there will be a sense that everything is right, God's judgment is fair, and we're with him forever. But I think there will be some sadness of things that we've missed and we've done wrong. And we all have those. But then there will be thanksgiving that it's all forgiven by the blood of Christ. And so it'll be a whole lot of complex things that we're thinking and feeling. Yeah. Yeah, good, Bob. Thanks. In the front here, I don't know your name. My name's Doug. I just Doug. wanted to share what uh, is uh, occurring to me as a personal conviction out of studying this, that these five things seem to... Uh, Speak up just a little bit. Yes, excuse me. These five things seem to remind us or remind me of my own pride in mm -hmm. my life and, and being convicted of pride that I really wanted to be a part mm -hmm. of this deal. And then if I'm willing to actually just believe like God tells us to, his word, then that should convict me also to want to share and to spread the word and to make sure I've done all yep. to gain the crowns that God has offered yep. me. So yep. it, it puts the onus on me in a different way yes. rather than me trying to take any responsibility or involvement. Okay, thank you, Doug. Good. Now, I just want to go section by section, Anne. And, and while I see you there, you and I need to talk about your ballet group in here uh, about a time for that okay um, I just wanted to say I you know when you said that you felt bad that you hadn't witnessed more to your professor but you have no idea whether talking to him about your belief didn't springboard him into his own research or into uh, you know maybe being witnessed to by somebody else because yeah. his spirit was then open yeah to me that would if God is in charge of everything in our life, um, I think you should have peace, Wayne. <laughs> I hope so, and that, that helps. <laughs> okay, um, just um, Christine Klaus. Yeah. Well, as we're studying the book of Esther, what comes to my mind in this whole thing is when Mordecai said to Esther, salvation will come for the Jews mm -hmm. because that's God's predestined plan. Yeah. And the question is, are you going to be a part of that? Yeah. 
or not. Yeah. So I sometimes think, in relation to what you were talking about, that's more the yeah. bigger picture is, are we going to participate yeah. or not? I'm, I'm with you on that, 100%. I, I just don't want to feel I dropped the ball. Okay, God works out his plan, yeah, but, but I, you know, okay, well. Okay, wait a minute, I saw another one here, and I, I, I've known your name, and I'm... Mackie, Mackie yes. Uh, I know I'm a taco short of a combination plate when I ask this, but when, I'm just trying to get my arms around it, when I was set and leaned next to Riley and asked him, on the Great Commission, if there are people that are chosen then when it tells you that you're going into all nations and that you're attacking all people to try mm -hmm. to accept his commandments, mm -hmm. get my arms around that. Well, I, okay, Mackie, good. Because we've got to try to put it together with the command to make disciples of all nations. But I think what this does is say, God has chosen people out there, so go and find them. Just try, find out. And it says to me, uh, the person next to me on the airplane, I should just probe a little bit. You know, I just, oh, oh, just kind of, whatever person you meet, you can kind of strike up some kind of conversation, feel, you know, and sometimes there's opening for the gospel. So, so those that aren't chosen, hmm? and, and I approach the, them and they just say, take a hike. Right. That's just... Uh, as far as just, you know, as far as you know, that's not a person that God has chosen. But it might be later, but you don't know. So go on to somebody else. Kind of like a puzzle. Kind of like what? A puzzle. Yeah. Just Peace kinda... doesn't fit here. Try something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But see, that's what Paul did. He went, he, every city, he'd go into the synagogue and start preaching. And the Jews would come and they believe in Jesus and they'd trust in Jesus. Jesus himself was a Jew. Paul was Jewish. But then there'd be other Jews in the synagogue and they'd attack him and they'd oppose him and they'd argue. And he'd say, okay, well, you had your chance. And then he'd go outside to the synagogue and he'd preach to the Gentiles. And some of the Jews would come with him and they'd believe. But the other ones, he wasn't going to spend his time knocking his head against the door you know, for years he, uh, or against the wall for years. He was just going to go where there was response and uh, uh, try again. And, okay, there's response here. So, And there's one, where does it say in Ephesus? Uh, a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. But see, he's seeing great response. All right, keep on. So, okay, way over here. N name huh? again. I'm, I'm Kevin Ludwig. Kevin. Oh, yes, I know who you are, Kevin. You're one of the missionaries that our class supports. I, I am, yes. yes. And, and, a, uh, and a physician. That's correct, okay. yes, sir. Um, and Jesus said that, that uh, no man comes to the Father but through me. But in Romans 1, um, it says that for his invisible attributes, namely his uh, eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Is this saying that there is an alternate means of salvation for those who, ha who have never heard the name of Jesus? Uh, specifically, I'm, I'm referring to, to my experience with, with tribal people who, for generations upon generations, have never, ever heard the name yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Some people have argued that from this very passage, Kevin. What, when I put it in the context of Romans 1, 2, and 3, I think that Paul is arguing here, people can know that God exists and something of his character, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and deity have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. 
when people look at trees, they look at mountains, they say, somebody made these. There is a God. So they are without excuse. Okay, so they know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to become wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So they say, there is a God. Oh, then I think he must look like a, a, a bull or a bird or a fish, and I make a fish. Or he must look like the sun or the moon, and they make an idol and they worship it, but they're claiming to become wise, they become fools. So they know there's a God, but they don't know the right way to him. I think that's what it's saying. They know that he exists. And then over in Romans 2, well, later in Romans 1, and then in Romans 2, he says they have his a sense of right and wrong on their heart too. Romans 2.14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. They, they, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So this... All right, I think it's, it's, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to commit adultery, it's wrong to lie. And, and they know something of that, they have a sense of it, but they know they haven't lived up to it. So without the Bible and without the gospel preaching, people can know that God exists and that he has moral standards that they've broken. But what they don't know is what Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, and that is the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then over in Romans 10, he is saying, how can they hear, let me see, Romans 10, 14, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? I remember being in China one day in a department store. Why are you here? I'm to tell people about Jesus. I have never heard of this man. Who is this? Perfect English, but never heard of Jesus. See, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he concludes, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I think that, that that's why we support you, um, to bring the message that hasn't been there. Now, now, somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, and I, I think I'm going to go on from that. Might it be that in places where the gospel has not got, gone, God would appear to people in a dream or a vision, bring some revelation of himself, is possible. But I don't think the Bible encourages us to depend on that or hope for that or place confidence in it. The confidence comes when we send the gospel message through missionaries and radio and Internet and every which way we can. Do you want to come back to me on that, Kevin? Okay. And I think your answer was, was wonderful. Thank you. Could you give him the microphone so he could? <laughs> <laughs> Just say that again, Kevin. <laughs> I was just wanting to give you an opportunity to speak to that, and, and I appreciate your, your answer. I think it was, it was a wonderful answer. Yeah, <laughs> there, you like that part. Okay. Well, we'll get it on the tape, too, I mean. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Another question over here. here. Oh, okay, Susie. This is a good follow-up because our family has been talking about the Ludwigs for the past week because I think their family is really one of the answers to some of these 
hard questions we've had, mm. and it, we've really praised God for you. Uh, mm. We were in the um, um, Christian Perspectives on the World Christian Movement um, maybe 15, 17 years ago, and while we were seeing it, it was God's will to choose some for salvation from all the tribes and tongues and nations. And I think you, your family is that link between the Great Commission mm-hmm. and election and that you have it in your heart to do that. Mm-hmm. And we've just been praising God that you do that because you are the answer. You're taking this message. And there are people from Papua New Guinea who will be saved because, as you and your daughter shared, how will they know unless we mm-hmm. tell them? And thank you. We, mm-hmm. we thank you so much. And we are mm-hmm. praying that your... Your initiative in this will lead to many more of us going to those nations. Thank you. Kevin and Debbie. Thank you, Susie. Yeah. Good. Good. You know, now I'm, I'm just feeling that I need to say something here. As Susie's speaking, it may be that what happened to the Ludwigs is happening to some of you here in this class, that you're saying, I wonder if God wants me to do more. I wonder if God wants me to go on a short-term mission trip or even to go on a longer-term mission commitment to people who have not had opportunity to hear the gospel. I wonder. And if God's putting that in your heart right now, I would encourage you to pay attention to it, much as we would miss you. (laughs) But we would pray for you and support you and be thankful for you. Okay, right here. Uh, Wayne, you, you mentioned that we do what we want to do, yeah. whether that's worship, come to Christ, or, yeah. or what. And isn't that, is that the problem, that our natural state is that we, what we want to do is not come to God? And I guess what I'm asking is, what, what, um, what do you think of the bondage of the will? I'm sorry. My Bible was resting on this, and it skipped forward many steps. Okay. What do I think of, can you say it again? Um, you mentioned that we do what we want to do. We can, yeah. you know, if we come to Christ, that's because that's what we most wanted to do yeah. at, that, at that point. Yeah. And I guess I'm asking what you think of the bondage of the will. I mean, is God, ah. does God have to re- release us from that bondage of the will so that that is a possibility for yeah. us? That is the title of a famous book by Martin Luther, uh, The Bondage of the Will. And uh, basically saying that unless God gives us the ability to believe, our hearts are dead in trespasses and sins. And there's nothing in us that is able to please God. And I, I agree with that. We're going to get to that when we get to the doctrine of regeneration, that when, when the gospel call comes, there has to be something in our hearts that is able to respond. And the Holy Spirit awakens that spiritual life in us, so we do respond. Yes, definitely. Okay, now I think I should... Oh, man, I just think I should finish up the rest of this quickly. Uh, Let's see. There is one other objection that comes up. The Bible says that God wills to save everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, Wayne, your doctrine of election is wrong. God desires all people to be saved. Hmm. How can you say that he's chosen, hasn't chosen all people to be saved? Or how about this one, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not sh- slow to p- fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, doesn't that say that God wills everybody to be saved? Therefore, when your doctrine of election is wrong. My response to that is, my response to that is, 
Yes, God does desire all people to be saved, but just just let me ask you. I, I need a volunteer. Well, I'll just ask you generally. Have you ever desired two things at once? Like, well, you desire a new car, but you don't want to spend the money, so you desire to save money. Well, that's, that's an, all right. Or you desire to uh, go out with friends, but you have a uh, lecture to prepare for the next morning. And so, do you know, we can desire two things at once, can't we? <clears throat> or <clears throat> or you, you, think about bringing up children. You desire to love your children, but also you desire to discipline them. And sometimes you discipline them in a way that painful is painful for them at the moment, but you're getting a larger desire later on. So it's possible for us to even desire two things at once, and even more than that. We're complex. God also desires more than one thing at once. God does desire all people to be saved, but the Calvinists and Arminians, or the Reformed and Arminians, that is, people on both sides of this question of election, have to say that God also, God also desires something else, more than he desires to save everyone. You see, the, my Arminian friends who, who, who disagree with me on election, they say that not everybody's saved. The verses in the Bible about you know, not all being saved and about being eternal punishment for those who are not, those verses are there, and they believe that. <clears throat> so I say, well, wait a minute. If you think God wants everybody saved, why isn't everybody saved? And they say, because there's something that God wants more than saving everybody. God wants to preserve man's totally free will more than he desires to save everyone. By totally free will, I mean it isn't, isn't caused by God, isn't de- determined by God. And it's totally free. And my answer is God desires to demonstrate his glory in both salvation and in righteous judgment over those who are wicked more than he desires to save everyone. So we both have to say that God desires something more than this, but God does desire all people to be saved, and that is, that's what he is pleased with, thinking about the individual at the, at the time, even though he has larger plans that are worked out, sometimes by saving some and sometimes by others. So I don't think that objection solves the problem. Now, I'm going to come here just at the end, <clears throat> just briefly touch on this. When you'd say, if God has chosen some to be saved, looking forward into history, then doesn't that mean that he's passed over others and not chosen them? And I have to say, yes, I think it does mean that. And this is called the doctrine of reprobation. That is, God has passed over some, in sorrow, not, not in joy, but in sorrow, knowing this would further his glory somehow, further his plans, in sorrow, passing over others and deciding not to save them, but to punish them justly for their sins and manifest his justice. There are just a few verses that talk about this. Jude 4, there were enemies coming in the church. <clears throat> Jude says certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. He's just saying... I know you've got really enemies that are giving you trouble, but God knew that ahead of time. And, and, uh, and that's part of God's plan as well. Don't be troubled. And Romans 9, Paul says to Pharaoh, uh, for this, uh, Scripture says to Pharaoh, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, <clears throat> that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. And now, yes, it says in the Bible that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it also says that God hardened his heart, and I think both are true. Um, and then uh, Romans 11:7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, those who turned against Christ. And 1 Peter 2:8, they, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, those who didn't believe. So um, 
and there are, there are some other passages there, Matthew 11, 25 to 26, and Ezekiel 33, 11. I think <clears throat> that God's heart is shown in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think it is right, therefore, that our hearts feel sadness at the thought of anybody not being saved. But then we come back to this and say the ground for election is God's grace, and we're thankful for that. The ground for reprobation or for passing over others is God's justice, and and we rest content that he is faithful to all his attributes. Okay, that is, that is the end. Um, I had some questions for application. I don't, I don't think they're on there, but, but um, I think, well, I hope that's been helpful. I think that's enough. I think I'll go on the next week to another topic. Um, if you have some questions yet, we could and comments. I could wait here afterward. Now, if I let my heart just settle from what we've been talking about, if I just let that the whole impact of the Bible's teaching on election just settle in my mind, and I think back on it, what is the dominant thing that is in my mind and heart out of all of this? that God is sovereign, and I owe him everything, and I am so thankful to him. And if he has chosen me and chosen you, then no matter what difficulties you are experiencing right now, or uncertainties, or troubles right now, if God has done all this for you, then know that these current situations are going to work out well, and he has a wonderful future for you as well. And, and then the doctrine of election leads me to praise. Okay, now we're going to try something here. There's a hymn that reflects this. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him. That is, he was seeking me. <clears throat> I, I, I came to Christ, I thought it was all me, but then I found out that afterward he was seeking me when I was seeking him. It was not I that found, O Savior true, no, I was found of thee. Lord, we thank you that we sought you, but then through your word, what we did not know was that you were seeking us before we even were seeking you. And Lord, it humbles us. It sobers us. It makes us cry out to you, thank you, O Lord our God. Thank you for what we did not deserve, but the great gift that you have given us and the gifts that you have yet laid up in store for us. And Lord... For this lesson, would you work in our hearts to encourage us now to be bold and, and just try and seek and talk to people who don't know you, just to find those whom you have chosen and to know that there will be response and they will come to trust in you too. Encourage our hearts in this, Lord, and our trust in you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.